Well, good morning, Village Church. Hey, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village, and I'm really glad to be with you this morning. Thanks for your patience. We had a little uh, technical difficulty this morning, as you might notice, but um, we're focused on the truth of the gospel this morning. So I want to ask you just to kind of take a deep breath here and focus in with us and open your Bible with us to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. So this morning, I'm going to be your scripture reader. And I'm also going to be the one that opens up the scripture for us and walks us through it this morning. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 9. It says this. And so from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to have a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in heaven, under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a minister. If you're new with us here at the Village, I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really grateful to be with you this morning, especially as we talk about what we're going to be talking about this morning. We spent the last six weeks talking um, about who we are as a church in our sermon series, We Are His. And the idea behind the sermon series is we are who we are because he is who he is. We are who we are because he is who he is. And we've spent the last six weeks, or the first six weeks rather, talking about who we are. We say that the village church exists to glorify God by growing and multiplying disciples who are delighting in Jesus and declaring the good news about Jesus. And displaying the life of Jesus because we believe that every village needs Jesus. Every place, every street, every city, every neighborhood. Literally every village in every country and every hidden place in the world, they all need him. We all need Jesus. And last week we started the first of seven weeks on really what we value. And Pastor Matt Bowman was here and he opened up the scripture for us and explained to us that, that we value the Bible, or reminded us that we value the Bible. We value Scripture. Our first value is biblical authority. Again, we are who we are because he is who he is. We value the Bible because Jesus values the Bible. Because Jesus valued the Bible. Jesus spoke about Scripture. Jesus taught from the Scriptures. 
Jesus went to the scriptures when he was tempted in Luke chapter 4. We know that Jesus had a high view of scripture. We know that Jesus, by his spirit, inspires the writing of scripture. But we are who we are because he is who he is. And so we value biblical authority. And, and what the Bible does is it tells us the story of God. It, it reveals to us the message and the truth of the gospel. And so this morning we'll be talking about gospel centrality. And this is something we talk about often around the Village Church. If you're here and you're a partner at the Village Church, you know this. And this morning um, might be something very familiar to you and hopefully very joyful for you to hear about the truth of the gospel. But again, we value the gospel Hear me? Because Jesus values the gospel. Because Jesus valued the gospel. One of the most formative um, gospel books in, in my life and my ministry has been the gospel of Mark. And one of the reasons for that is some of the training I had early on in ministry from the gospel of Mark, specifically the first two chapters, Mark 1 and Mark chapter 2, and the way that Jesus kind of introduces himself and, and engages in his ministry. The Gospel of Mark just tells us that Jesus got right after it. And in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, what? Proclaiming the Gospel of God. Like Mark has a sense of urgency when he writes his Gospel. So he just gets right to it and says, this is what Jesus is doing. He's proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. We are who we are because he is who he is. We value the Gospel because Jesus valued it enough to talk about it first and most. This is the first thing Jesus talked about. This is the first thing he declared, which I think has a bearing on, on the way we follow Jesus. Theologian, author, Trevin Wax, he, um, he's the director of the Gospel Project. He wrote a book called Counterfeit Gospels, you may have read. He's authored countless other books. He's done, been on the Gospel Coalition for the last 10 years. In, I don't know, 2010, 2012, he started keeping track of definitions of the Gospel. If we're going to talk about Gospel centrality this morning, maybe we start with what is the Gospel. I know this is basic for some of you, but it's a good question what is the gospel? Trevin Wax did some research, and he found over 60 definitions of the gospel in his early research in early 2010, 2012. 60 different definitions of the gospel. And I'm here to tell you this morning, the gospel is not many of those definitions. The gospel is not the good news that, you know, God wants to, you know, let you do whatever you want with your life and just sort of get behind your program for your existence. You know, the gospel is not that, that the good news that you can have whatever you want if you just trust Jesus. The gospel is not the good news that you'll just have the health and wealth that you're looking for if you just follow Jesus and his example. Like, there's so many things the gospel is not. And in those 60 definitions, there are so many of them that have nothing to do with the gospel. But you can find them on the internet, and your, your family member may have told it to you. You may have heard it from someone else. Maybe I'll give Trevor the 61st. I Hopefully mine is close to his or someone else's, right? But here's, here's what I'm saying this morning where we're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the good news of God's plan to rescue humanity and repair his creation. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the truth of the gospel. It's the good news of God's plan. This is his plan to rescue humanity and to repair his creation. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about the content of the gospel I want to talk about the context of the gospel, and then I want to focus in on the centrality of the gospel in our lives. So let's start with the content of the gospel. If you're around the Village Church, you may have heard me say this a hundred times, that Jesus lived a life that we could never live, a perfectly sinless life before God. That he died the death that we should have died, a sinner's death, on the cross and in our place and for our sins. 
and that he rose to give us a life we can never have otherwise. A life that's set apart for God, to live our lives for God. A life, life that's set apart for him because we're free and forgiven now when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus. And that he alone is the way and the truth and the life. And that he alone is, is our way to have relationship with God. You may have heard me say that a hundred times, and hopefully you'll hear me or someone of our pastors say it a hundred more. This is, this is the core content, the core truth of what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Our friend Trevin, he actually says it this way, the gospel is the royal announcement that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a perfect life in our place, died a substitutionary death on the cross for our sins, rose triumphantly from the grave to launch God's new creation, and is now exalted as king of the world, sounds about the same. It should. The core content of the gospel is, is simple, but it is significant. It's important that we understand it rightly. I believe this is the core content of the gospel, but this core content of the gospel is, is found within the context of the good and greater story of God. And so let's talk about the context of this gospel truth for a moment Actually, for a few moments, <laughs> we may be here a little while. I want to pause and say, listen, I know for many of you, you understand the core content of the gospel, and you've believed it. And you understand the context of the gospel and how it's going to fall. And as you see one of my next slides, you're going to know, yeah, I know where that core content falls in, in God's plan, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. But I'll pause and say for a moment, I think it's increasingly important in our cultural context where, where many, if not most people today, don't know the storyline of the Bible. To know this storyline and to be able to be prepared to share it with people, the larger context of the gospel, when we get ready to share the truth of the gospel with other people. You know, you may be here this morning joining us, and you may be someone who doesn't really understand the storyline of the Bible, and we're so glad that you're here. I'm going to walk you through it in the next five, seven minutes. And, and I was reminded of this... That, the other day when I, when I thought about uh, this story as I was preparing this sermon, one of our former pastors who's now in a different, different state pastoring a church, he told me a story about one of his kids in an in a Irvine you know, Unified School District Elementary class and something came up about Jesus and you know, one of the kids raised their hand and said, you know, who is Jesus? In Village Church, I want to tell you that like, there's an entire generation of young people. I mean, God has brought the nations to our doorstep in the city of Irvine, and there are a lot of kids that are probably wondering that same question. If you're a teacher, you know when someone asks a question, they ask it the question, and probably a lot of your other students are thinking the same question. When this little girl raised her hand and said, who is Jesus, it was probably because a bunch of her friends have the same question. There is an entire generation of children and of youth and of people that are growing up in our context, in our cultural context, that have no idea about the storyline of the Bible and don't even know who Jesus Christ is. And that's different from, from the history of the place that we live. There was a day where people would know something about the context of the Bible or they would know something about who Jesus is. If they got it wrong, they got it wrong, but at least knew who he was. We live in a day and age where there are young people growing up right in our midst that you're going to see in Trader Joe's and at the movie theater and pumping gas next to you. They don't even know who he is. So I think it's important that we understand the context of the gospel. And it was important for the Colossians also. When Paul came to them, they didn't have any idea about these things. And so the larger context that the gospel is found in is this creation, fall, redemption and recreation narrative. It's the story of God. Let's start in creation. 
where it all started and where Paul starts in verses 15 to 17. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you know the truth about the gospel, you know that the gospel literally means good news. Because it's the good news about the goodness of God. And if we're talking about the goodness of God, I think we should go back to the beginning where the goodness of God revealed to human beings began. The goodness of God in creation. The, the Bible teaches that God was good to create everything, as this verse says. And that God is good to sustain everything. God continues to sustain the world despite the presence of sin tainting it. That God was good to create us something like himself with dignity and value and worth. With a mind that could think relationally like he is. Creatively like he is. God created us in ways like himself. That God was good to create us in a perfect relationship with him. Where there was nothing butting up against our relationship. Nothing tainting our relationship with him. God was good to create us in a perfect relationship with each other. So we'd have perfect marriages and friendships and communities. God was good to give us meaningful work to do. As you think about your work, I, I hope you find it meaningful. And I think for many of you, sometimes you wonder, God was good in the beginning to give his creation meaningful work to do. God was good to provide all that we needed Adam and Eve, our first parents in the garden, had everything that they needed. God was good to give us a divinely inspired playground. Could you imagine? Our family was on vacation the last couple of weeks, and we spent a week in Hume Lake with some of your students. That was really fun. What a privilege it was to be there at the same time that they were there. It was actually a dream come true for, for Dean and I. We spent the second week in Idaho with some friends who were like family to us. And there was a day where we were on the lake, and I was behind the boat wakeboarding, you know, and I was pulling out to the side, getting the rope tight right before my backflip, and as I was, <laughs> you don't know me, why are you laughing? You don't know, you don't watch the videos. So right before the, not backflip, but at least the jump over the wake, okay? So right before that, I was, I was looking at this, I mean, there was no one on the lake, and it was glassy and placid, and the mountains on the range were unbelievable, the trees, all the shades of green. And I was just praying and singing praise songs as I'm on a wakeboard because I'm saying, Lord, thank you. I mean, it's just like, I love that. Hume Lake's theme is the gospel at play. And we were there for a week hearing about the gospel, playing in his creation, found our way to Idaho, and here we are playing again. Like God was good, God is good to give us this divinely inspired playground. And God was good to do it all for his glory, as it says here. And God was good to do it also for our good and for our joy and God is good to protect us from anything less than his goodness and his best for us by giving us one command to obey. And let me pause here for a moment, especially for you young people, and tell you that God's commands for you are not to sort of be some kind of cosmic killjoy to constrain your life. God's commands for you are to provide for you the ultimate best for you and to protect you from anything less than that. That's a reason God gives us commands. He wants to give you the best of everything, and he wants to protect you from whatever is less than that. And our parents in the garden had one command that God gave them for their protection. And Genesis said God saw all this that he had made, and he said, behold, it was very good. We have good news because in the beginning we have a good God who created all of these good things for his good pleasure, 
and for our goodness and joy. I want to pause for a moment also and tell you, you know, there's a growing movement in intelligent design and creationism. And maybe you're sitting here going, hey, I, God created this, God created that, God sustains this, God sustains that. That's not my, what my junior college, you know, biology professor told me. I know. But there's a growing movement in intelligent design and creationism. Like, this is not, this is not unreasonable to believe. So I just want to pause here, and if you're hearing this, and even if you're a Christian and you're like, I've always wondered about that, or if you're not yet a Christian, and in the back of your mind you're going, yeah, that's one of the reasons I'm not a Christian, I always encourage you to look into intelligent design and creationism. Michael Behe, microbiologist, Scott Minnick, you know, there's Henry Schaefer, he's a quantum chemist. I mean, a lot of these really, really, really sharp scientists are going, yeah, it has to be. It has to be. There's a good reason to believe in God's goodness and creation. If you're a Christian, I want you to believe that this morning. I want to encourage you with that. There is good reason to believe in God's goodness in creation. That's a whole other sermon, but just that's for what it's worth, all right? All right, we're going to make a little shift here. And, you know, it's been said that, that there is no good news unless there's first bad news. Or there's no good news unless there's also bad news, right? Like we don't know what, you know, hot water is unless we also know what cold water is, right? You would never know the goodness of the, the iPhone operating system if you didn't first own an Android. You know, it's just like that, that kind of thing, you know. You would never know the beauty of a California summer unless you did summer in Tennessee or Texas, right? Or, or anywhere else in the country. And I know once a quarter I got to get one of those jabs in there. But I'm just saying, like, in California in the spring, it's wonderful. But in those other places, you sweat on your back. You know, in spring, you sweat on your back. So all I'm saying is you only know the good things if you haven't also known the bad things. Are you with me? Yeah. I joke a little bit because we're going to enter into something pretty serious, actually. Because like any good story, the story of God includes the presence of an antagonist, right, an anti-hero. And that's because every, every story that, that we have, every story that we create, every good story that we create or make is based on the story that God created. Every story is either, that we create is either a reflection or it's a ripoff of God's story. He's the one that tells good stories. He's the one that's told the best story. He's the one that's accomplished the best story. It's not a story, it's a reality. The story is so filled with good news that it can only be rightly understood if you also understand the bad news. And as Christians, we call this the fall, right? There's creation and then there's the fall where our parents, Adam and Eve, they believed the lie that Satan told them, the anti-hero, that there was something better than all the good that God had created and that God was hiding that better thing from them. And they thought that that idea of something better than God's goodness was worth obeying God, disobeying God's one command to not eat of the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So our first parents, they did something not good but bad, something evil, something what the Bible calls sinful, and disobeyed God's good command, really because they wanted to be the God of their own lives. And in that moment, sin entered the world, and it, that sin broke and tainted all the good things that God had given them and all the good things that God had given us and has given us. And, and in Colossians 1, Paul alludes to this reality in verse 21 where he says, And you who were once alienated, because they have believed the truth of the gospel, but he reminds them of where they were before they placed their faith and their hope and their trust in Christ. He says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. 
He's reminding them because the Colossians knew these truths, but they had, were, were sort of forgetting about them because they were being influenced. If you study the book of Colossians, you'll know that they were being influenced by people who were trying to tell them that it's not really that bad. Sin is not really that bad. Like this whole fall thing is just part of the story. It's not really that bad. It's not that evil. I mean, we're using the word evil. It's not like that. And so Paul reminds them, no, it is like that. And he gives them this progression. Do you see it in that verse? Alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. And this is the reality of the story, that our first parents in the garden, they, they fled from God. They hid from his presence in the garden. They became alienated from him. God actually sent them out of the garden. This word alienated means to be estranged from. They became estranged from God. Sin makes us estranged from God. It shuts us out of relationship with him. Whether it's that we're ignoring him or that we're neglecting him or we're opposing him. Whatever the case, it's all the same. The effect is all the same. We are alienated from God. But it's not just that we're alienated. We become hostile toward God. This word hostile literally means hating or opposing. It means blaming. This is the point where we blame God and we tell God, no, it's your fault that you made it this way. It's your fault that you allowed for this stuff. It's your fault that life is this way. It's your fault that that is broken. And we don't just alienate ourselves from God. We blame God and we become hostile toward him in our minds. And some of us are hostile toward him. In our, have you ever heard someone just, just spew all kinds of venom about who, God, who they think God is? We become hostile in our minds. It comes out through some of our mouths. Paul said this is the reality. This is how bad it is. We become alienated. We become hostile. And then we do evil to him. This word evil literally means doing evil deeds to, to to have a bad nature or condition. It means to make it your business or your employment. This becomes our vocation. We go from being alienated from God to being hostile to him to making it our business to oppose him. And if we'd all just think for a moment in our own lives before we came to Christ, one of those realities is true for us. We were either alienated from him, many of us actually becoming maybe hostile toward God, Blaming him, and some of us even making it our business to do evil deeds, making it our business to oppose him. Our situation was bad. Our situation outside of Jesus is bad, but there is good news because we're talking about the gospel. Our situation was bad, but God is so good, he was too good to leave us in that place. We make our way to redemption. Someone would have to come and fix the brokenness between God and humanity. And the storyline of the Bible tells us that only pers only, that person can only be the God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. Only someone who fully God, fully man could bridge the gap between God and mankind. And so this is where we talk about the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Paul talks about the life of Jesus to the Colossians. He says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life on our behalf, the God-man living a life for us that we could never live on our own. Jesus also died the death we should have died. Verse 22 says, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. He made peace by the blood of his cross, verse 20 tells us. That word holy literally means saint. Blameless means unblameable. Above reproach means you can't be called into account anymore. That Jesus lived a sinless life. 
And he died a substitutionary death on the cross and in our place and for our sins. And when we place our faith and trust and hope in him as the son of God come to save us from our sins, what literally Paul is telling the, the Corinthians is that, that he sees you as a saint, not a sinner. That you were literally sees you as morally faultless and blameless, unblameable before him. And he sees you in a state where you cannot be called into account for your sin anymore. You're unaccusable. Satan is literally called the accuser of the brethren. But as Christians, we are unaccusable before God. Jesus has already dealt with all of that on the cross. Jesus was accused for us. Jesus was blamed in our place. All the weight of the guilt and sin and shame of all of our sin was placed on Jesus on the cross. This is what the Bible teaches us about the good news about Jesus. And that Jesus rose for us, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus rose from death to give us a life we could never have otherwise, a life that's empowered to live out of the freedom and the forgiveness that we find when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus. And only Jesus can offer this to us. The exclusive claims of Jesus. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, he might be preeminent. Preeminent means first. It means separated. It means above everyone or anything else. And you've had people tell you, yeah, God's at the top of a mountain. There's lots of different roads to get there. Or all these different faiths are the same. Christianity is saying no. Matter of fact, Christianity is not only saying no. Jesus is saying no. Jesus is the one who said, look, I'm the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one but the, comes to the Father except through me. And Paul is just simply repeating what Jesus already said, that in everything he might have preeminence. You know, Jesus and Muhammad are not same-same. That's what this is saying. It's not same-same. That in everything he might be preeminent. You're not going to find forgiveness for your sins. You're not going to find the freedom that God created you enjoy in the beginning outside of Jesus. This is what Paul is telling this group of Christians. And this is what I'm telling you this morning. Only, this, only Jesus can offer this kind of life to us. You know, Paul reminds them that they can say that they believe this, but they have to live like they do. That's why verse 23 kind of caught me. Did it catch you? If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And there are a lot of people today who used to profess one thing and now profess another thing. And the question is, well, in what meaningful way does it still make you a Christian? Like if you just said like, yeah, I, I used to follow Jesus or I used to be a Christian, and then you're like, yeah, but now I'm, I'm this, but I, I still think I'm a Christian. It's like, I used to believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that's what forgives my sins, but like now I believe this. In what meaningful way, if, you, if you've, strayed from the truth of the gospel, as Paul said to the Colossians, would we be Christians if we, if we say that? Paul says th these four words, stable, steadfast, not shifting, continuing in the faith. Like this is all about being rooted and grounded, like not moving. And I think the question for us this morning is met most of us people that profess the tr faith and hope in Jesus is in the gospel, like, is that faith and hope so grounded, like, we are not moving? Stable, steadfast, not shifting. And Village Church, I just want to stand in front of you just as one of your pastors and say, we are not moving. 
Like the, the village church is not moving away from the truth of the gospel, the, the hope that was once for all delivered to the saints. Like we, will, we are not moving. Like there are churches that are moving from these realities, moving from talking about sort of how bad sin is or what that really means or moving from what the gospel is. Like, no, it's not about you. It's about systems and structures and God just making the world better for all of us. Like we're, we're not moving from any of that. We are not moving from that. We never will. If anyone moves, it will be the person that believes that, right? If any one of our pastors ever was like, yeah, I don't believe that anymore, then they're moving. We're not moving. I'm not moving. And I can tell you collectively, your elders, like we are not moving from the truths of the gospel. This church will never move from that. I hope that brings you some comfort. You know, Jesus says this bears a response. He says... He said it was proclaiming the gospel of God, and in Mark 1 it says, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. I just want to pause for a minute and say, if you're with us and you've, you've never heard these things before, the gospel demands a response, and that response is repentance, which means turning from the way that we were living outside of Jesus or being the God of our own life and then turning toward him and saying, like, I believe you're the son of God who came to live a sinless life on my behalf and die on the cross in my place for all my sin. Like, I was alienated. I was hostile. I was doing evil deeds. Yeah, I was. And I am. And I, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to turn to you. I want to be forgiven. I want to accept your sacrifice on the cross. I want to be free to live that good life that you've created me for, that you would respond to him this morning. I'm going to give you a chance to do that at the end of our time. And as a Christian, that you would respond this morning, that you'd be reminded of those truths and you'd rejoice in these realities. And there's probably something that you and I need to repent of this morning because that repentance is ongoing. It's not just a one-time thing. It is for our salvation, but we continue to repent as we're sanctified, as we're trained, transformed in the image of Christ. There's probably something for us to recognize in terms of a gospel reality this morning. But God's gospel is so good that it's not just about us personally. It is about sort of the world cosmically. It is about things systemically as well. And we call that recreation. Paul touches on it in verse 19 to 20 where it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is in the process of making all things new. So if you're a Christian and you've had the thought, you know, I, I believe all this stuff. I believe the good news of the gospel. I believe in God's goodness to me. But, like, why is this bad stuff still happening in the world? Why is evil still present in the world? Why is this still happening? God has a plan to redeem all things, to make all things new, to reconcile all things to himself. If you're looking for justice today, for something, it will be had someday, right? Those kinds of ideas. He is in the process of making all things new. In the beginning of the book, we see God's goodness in creation. At the end of the book, we see God's goodness in the recreation in Revelation 21. Verse 5 says it really succinctly. And he who was seated on the throne, we know who that is, said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then he also said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and they are true. When you and I hear something that, that is significant, what do we do? We pause and we write it down. Jesus tells John, write this down. You can bank on this. This is trustworthy. This is true. I am making all things new, Jesus says. We have the core content of the gospel. We have the context of the gospel and the creation and the fall and the redemption and the recreation. And I want to end our time 
briefly by talking about the centrality of the gospel in our lives. I know for many of you, you know these truths, you know these realities. And, and I love reminding you of them. But maybe in the back of your mind, the question is, how do I center my life around these big ideas? I mean, these are all really big ideas, the, the core content of the gospel and the context of it. I mean, how do I center my day-to-day realities around the big ideas of the truths of the gospel? I think would say, truth be told, this isn't always easy. Which is why I think before Paul shares all these truths about the gospel with them, he rem- he, that he reminds them about, he prays about the implications of the gospel. And he starts in verse 9 where he says, And so from the first day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. How do I center my daily life around the truth of the gospel? Four things this morning as we end. One, gospel mindset, gospel mentality. The combination of wisdom and understanding here really equals ability, and it's an ability to discern the truth of the gospel in any circumstance so that you make not just, listen to me, not just a good decision, but a gospel decision, a gospel-oriented decision. Look, there are good decisions that may not be completely gospel-oriented decisions. There's a connection, but I'm talking about the decisions that's not just a good decision. It is a gospel-oriented decision. You might say, well, how would I do that? Good question. I think it might work something like this. I want you to think for yourself in your mind right now about one, one circumstance in your life that, that you're struggling, you're wrestling through. And you want to make a good decision about that, that thing, about that relationship, about the job, about the way you treat this person, about your decision about how to enter into this or go about that. Get that thing in your mind for a moment. A circumstance in your life that you want or you need to live your life in a gospel-centered way around. Now, I just want you to pause for a moment, and I want you to look at the next slide, and I want you to think through these four questions. One surrounding the life of Jesus. So I want you to think about that circumstance, and I want you to think about this first question and try to see any kind of connection there. What would be perfect obedience to God in this circumstance? So, like, erase all the other things that are attached to it. Yeah, but this, or yeah, but what about that, or yeah, but, you know, you you, you didn't. What would perfect obedience to God look like around this circumstance? Secondly, think about the death of Jesus and ask yourself the question, how would I be demonstrating selfless sacrifice in this circumstance? I think that might help us make a gospel-oriented decision about that thing. I want you to think about the resurrection of Jesus for a moment. Take that circumstance and take the resurrection of Jesus and the power of God in his resurrection, I want to ask yourself, how can God's power be displayed in this circumstance? That, that might help you and I make a better decision about a, a gospel-oriented decision, rather, rather than just a good decision. And also think about the exclusive claims of Christ. And maybe, maybe have the exclusive claims of Christ here and have this circumstance here or this decision. And just ask yourself, how can this circumstance point others to Jesus? That's the point. It's all supposed to point to him because he is preeminent. So what would you do? What would you say? How would you act in this situation that's in line perfect obedience to God? It's self, it demonstrates selfless sacrifice. God's power can be displayed in it. And it points other people to Jesus. If you can answer all those four questions, I believe you can make a gospel-oriented decision, listen to me, about anything.
living a gospel-centered life doesn't just mean that we think in a gospel-centered kind of way. It means that we live in a gospel-centered kind of way. And Paul knows this. And so in verse 10, he says, so as we walk, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's not just a gospel mindset, but it's gospel obedience. And a gospel-centered life it's not just a life that understands Jesus and the truth of the gospel, but it's a life that imitates Jesus in the outworkings of the truths of his gospel. And Jesus is not just concerned that we understand the gospel, but that we undertake living our lives in light of the gospel, right? This is gospel obedience. And Paul says a few things, pleasing to him, bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God. It really begins with the desire to please and if you look underneath the language here, it, it might kind of be the desire to, to please one another. Think about when you first began to, to date or court your spouse. And you just, you always had a desire to please that person. You're always thinking about that. This is the idea. Like we have a gospel mindset. We can live out of a gospel obedience. There's a desire deep within. It's within our heart, our soul, our gut, our core, the Bible talks about. The bowels, right? It's in us. We've been changed by God. His spirit bears witness with ours. The spirit indwells us. And there's a desire there, new desires, new affections to live out of that obedience. And that obedience produces something. It's living productive lives for the sake of Jesus. We have a desire to please him. And then we see fruit born in our lives through that gospel obedience. And we increase in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God doesn't come by reading more books about him. Do you know that? That's what this is telling us. It, it comes by obeying him. Like, that's how we literally increase in knowledge of God. We increase in the knowledge of God when we obey God and live our lives in alignment with him. We come to know more about Jesus by obeying Jesus. That's how that works. So we want to live gospel-centered, gospel-oriented lives. There's a gospel mindset. There's gospel obedience. But that is only possible with gospel power, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul says all here twice, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, all endurance and patience with joy. All in all, it literally means unmatched power. Paul's saying there's unmatched power for you available. There's unmatched power available to you because the spirit of Christ dwells in you. Paul told the Romans, if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Not just life breathing in and out air, but like spiritual vibrant life. This is where we go. Gospel mindset, gospel obedience, only possible through gospel power. He says for endurance. This is the only kind of power that will help you to endure hard circumstances. Patience. <laughs> this is the only kind of power that will help you endure hard people. You have some of those? <laughs> with, and to do it with joy. All of this is great, but I think we will only want a gospel mindset, and we will only want to walk in gospel obedience, and we will only want to walk in gospel power or through gospel power if we have one simple thing. And I think this is the secret in verses 12 to 14. Paul says, giving thanks to God, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Village Church, this is gospel gratitude. 
if you read the book of Colossians, if you read chapter 1, Paul's already given a lot of thanks to God in the first eight verses, but now he gives thanks again. And the question is why? And I think at least in part the answer is this, that Paul knows a gospel secret. Paul knows a gospel secret. And I'm glad I see how few of you look up at me because when you hear gospel in secret, you should, you should be like, what, is there something new? No, there's not. We're not talking about Gnosticism. We're not talking about heresy this morning. But I like that. I like that Village Church. I saw some of your heads prop up. There is no secret, but you know what I mean. This is a gospel secret. It's a, it's a best practice, if you will. I think the secret is this, that the a gratitude for the gospel is the thing that ultimately grounds us and centers us in the gospel. Like The people that are going to stay gospel-centered are the people that are really, really, really grateful. If you remember anything this morning, I hope you remember the truth of the gospel, and I hope you remember that we are to be a people that are grateful, <laughs> incredibly grateful for these realities, and that we never, we never cease to be a people that are grateful for these things, like deeply, noticeably, obviously, consistently, joyfully grateful for the truths of the gospel. You want to live a gospel-centered life, just stay grateful for the gospel, and I believe you will. You will have a gospel mindset. You will walk in gospel obedience. You will, you will want and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to live out the truths of the gospel. You will do all of that if you're simply grateful. I think this is the good news that we have this morning, that Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus rose so we could live our lives joyfully centered on the goodness of God and his gospel. Church, I thought this morning um, what would be an interesting, helpful thing to do would be to pray for all of us. This prayer that Paul prayed for the Colossians, I would like to pray it for you. I want to pray it for me. I want to pray it for us. So as we wrap up our time this morning, would you bow your heads? Would you bow your hearts with me? And I want to pray Paul's prayer for the Colossians. I want to pray it over us as a church. I want to ask God for these realities for, for our church, not just for the Colossians church. I believe that's in part why it's here. It's why it's recorded. It was for them, but it is for us. So would you bow your heart? Would you bow your head with me? Would you allow me to pray these things over you, over us? Lord, I want to continue because I know the faith of the people that I'm with this morning to pray for them. I don't want to cease to pray for them. We as pastors, would you help us to never cease to pray these things? I pray that these people, your people, would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding give us a gospel mindset, Lord. I pray that you would help us, empower us to, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing you. Lord, will you help us? We want to bear fruit in every good work. And would you increase our knowledge of you as we walk in that obedience. 
pray that we would be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might and that you would strengthen us for all endurance for those hard circumstances for all patience those hard people and to do it with joy would you help us to be a people that lives out of a gospel gratitude giving thanks to the Father because you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us in the kingdom of your beloved son and in you we have redemption and we have forgiveness of our sins. Would you remind us this morning of our redemption? Would you remind us of the forgiveness of our sins? Would you remind us of these incredible truths of your glorious gospel? And would you help us to be a people that centers our lives and the life of this church in an unwavering way on these realities? We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.